Greg Doler has fond memories of growing up on the sets of his dad's movies. Yeah, one of my earliest memories was helping my dad mix fake blood in the in the utility sink in our basement. You know, <laughs> that's not usually what what people say about their earliest memory with their dad. That's what it is. Get ready for a bonkers ass ride through the wildest and most extreme horror and exploitation cinema as Greg Doler and author Matt Rotman take the wheel to kick a new season of Cinema Junkie into high gear. Beast of the Yellow Knight. See it with someone you trust. Night train to terror. Climb aboard. Your destination is hell. Eat and run. The comedy you can sink your teeth into. This is not for the weak. This is truly the shriek of the mutilated. Rated R. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Greg's dad was Don Doler, the director of Fiend, Alien Factor, and Blood Massacre. Greg chats with me about working as a teenager on his dad's films and loving it. Then, author Matt Rotman discusses his love for bonkers-ass films like Doler's Night Beast and his disgust for people who dare call films like that bad. So if you feel no guilt over your love for low-budget exploitation films, then this is exactly the podcast for you. But if you think Bigfoot's Bride, Centipede Horror, and The Mad Doctor of Blood Island are undeserving of your attention, then I hope you'll take a listen and see if we can win you over to our Bonkers point of view. Bonkers at Cinema is the new book by Matt Rotman. It's also an ethos he lives by. The way I describe it in the book is basically, I say there are two types of people in this world, and two types only. People who laugh at Plan 9 from Outer Space. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. And the weird, crazed hermit uncles that genuinely love it. And my book is a manifesto for all those crazed hermit uncles. Rotman is a kindred spirit, and I can't wait to share these bonkers titles with you. So hold tight, and I'll be right back with both Greg Doler and Matt Rotman. The mad doctor of Blood Island is coming your way soon, and he's waiting for you. Why don't you pay him a visit? No appointments are necessary, but bring along your courage. You will need it. Yes, indeed. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. 
Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. The scene so shocking that a special warning bell has been installed to protect the faint-hearted. When the bell rings, we suggest they close their eyes and not open them until it rings again. Welcome back to Terror is a Man, Bloodsuckers from Outer Space, Easter Bunny Kill Kill, and Deadly Weapons. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons. These are the bastard children of cinema that author Matt Rotman embraces with the love, respect, and joyous celebration they deserve. Night Beast, made by Greg's father, Don Dohler, is one of those films. It, it epitomizes exactly what the book is. See the movie that will change the face of modern science fiction cinema. Night Beast. Terror from beyond. Like, it's directed and written by Don Dohler, who was this, ah, just this true underground inspirational figure who lived in Baltimore. And so he made a series of the wildest, cheapest, most handmade science fiction action films. They always usually featured a crash landing of an alien. What the hell was that? You never know what the motivation of the alien is. He just likes to walk around and kill people. And utilizing just the most handmade special effects you've ever seen. Like, he wasn't afraid to get gory. And Night Beast is one of those films you can look at and you can make fun of. Sure, like, it's very easy to watch Night Beast and make fun of it. But just to imagine it was made for, like, $30,000 of what they're able to get on screen. It's inspirational. Holy shit. That was Night Beast, made in 1982 by Don Dohler. The film boasts the first screen credit for J.J. Abrams, who's listed as Jeffrey Abrams and is one of the composers for the film. Dohler's son Greg recalls how his dad got into filmmaking. Well, my father was a magazine publisher, independent filmmaker. Very early on, he, he published a fanzine that kind of featured a lot of artists that went on to be kind of notable figures in the underground comics. So. And he thought about being a comic artist, but decided he didn't have quite the talent level and it would have been too hard to try to sustain that. But he liked publishing, so he kept doing that and he liked films and he liked special effects. Uh, And there was really nothing out there to tell amateur filmmakers how to do the things that they saw in movies like King Kong or whatever. So he started publishing Cinemagic and started building a film community, which led to making his own films. And here in San Diego, we just showed Night Beast as part of a book signing event because the author, Matt Rotman, chose Night Beast. And you were in the film. So were you one of the children? Well, my sister and I, right, we know we're in the film. Why are we stopping, Uncle Dave? You kids stay put. I'm just going to take a minute. And we played the niece and nephew of, of a guy... David Donahoe, who was actually the pyrotechnics guy. So any explosions that you see in Night Beast, any of the fog, which we you know we didn't have a budget for a fog machine. So David had this, he was a sort of amateur chemist 
and he, he would soak newspapers in God knows what, some sort of chemical that would make them sort of um, smolder slowly. They wouldn't catch fire. So any smoke you see in any of my dad's films is the result of like 15 people placed around the woods holding smoldering, chemically treated, new, rolled up newspapers. So that's, that's the guy who played our uncle. And so we were brother and sister and riding with our uncle until we have an unfortunate meeting with the night beast. What are you trying to do? Give me a heart attack? <laughs> That's not very funny. Uncle Dave! There's somebody up there! I've had enough of you kids tonight. Now get back in a car. And how old were you on that? 16. And I think I saw you also credited as a sound recordist? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, it's like if you... Well, the adults who, who were, you know, on the crew volunteered. My dad volunteered my sister and I. But I, we also were into it. So, you know, maybe I was a little more into it than my sister, but she was good too on the set. So we both, so I was eager, you know, I mean, if, you know, when I was really young, of course they wouldn't let me do anything except maybe carry things. And then once I started getting old enough to kind of understand some things, my dad would, you know, say, okay, well, I'm gonna teach you the basics, you know, make sure the needle doesn't go into the red when you're recording, you know, like really basic stuff, you know, and then I would just fixate on these few things he told me. And so I guess I was a sound recordist for, for but yeah, it was a different job each film, but I was always happy to do anything that he wanted, you know. So. And you are a photographer now, and I believe you credit your dad for kind of getting you into that? Well, yeah, be, uh, well, indirectly, I mean, because I was on his film set. So the cameraman for Fiend, Richard Guywitz, was also a, a still photographer. And he let me play with his camera on the set occasionally. And I just loved it. And then eventually got my own camera and just snowballed from there. So, yeah. Now, we showed this film in a micro cinema, but it was packed. And one thing that Matt said when he introduced the film is he said, you know, this is the kind of movie that is very easy to watch and make fun of. Sure. But when you think about how this film was made for just tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And what is on the screen. Yeah. Like you really have to appreciate what it does. And so I'm just wondering, like, what was your experience like on the film? Because I imagine, you know, this had to be kind of a family communal kind of thing, like with friends and family coming together to make this because it did have such a small budget. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're in it, you're, it's, it's like everybody just wants it to happen. And so you've got a small group of people, but everybody's eager to do whatever is necessary. And there were some uh, the same people on all the films, but each film there might be a, a different, you know, one or two people who were part of the crew, but they were always just either really serious amateur filmmakers, budding professionals who would then go on to do other stuff, more professional stuff, but everybody wanted to be there and just was willing to work really hard to, to kind of get it done. It was not uncommon, you know, like 14 hour days on the weekends, sometimes all night. Sometimes my sister and I would pass out in the backseat of our car and my dad would wake us up at six in the morning, like, okay, we, we're, we're done. And you know, <laughs> at home or something, it was just, 
but it's just craziness. Um, it's felt normal because that's all we knew as kids. But yeah, it's just, yeah, just enthusiastic people who wanted to do something and they, they got it done. And what do you remember of your dad's kind of attitude towards filmmaking? Because one of the things I love about these kind of movies is you feel like the people making them just have to make them and yeah. they have like a passion to do it. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, my dad was, uh, he was a quiet guy, a very introverted guy, but a, a super active mind. I obviously knew him really well. And I could, a lot of people just thought he was this just quiet guy with maybe not, if you didn't know him, like not a lot going on. But I knew when he wasn't talking, he was thinking about something that he was, you know, that might manifest itself a month from now or something. He was working out a scene or, or whatever. So I always wonder why, because it, you know, as, as an adult, when I look back on the whole thing, it just seems so crazy, this whole life that he led and that, that my sister and I, you know, were there for. And I, you know, I struggled with like, well, why did he do this? I mean, he gave up a good nine to five job. He put our family's finances at risk. Lots of fights with my mother who had, did not understand why this life was happening to us. And I think, why'd he do it? And I finally, a friend of mine finally said, did it ever just occur to you that he had to, he's an artist. And this is, you know, you could, you could put him in a traditional box for a while, but he's gonna go crazy and jump out at some point. And that's what he did. Yeah, he had to do it. And obviously it, filmmaking is so much easier now with digital and computers and, and it, but when I think about the amount of work that was involved and just the stress of shooting with film and if something wasn't right, and he always had these sort of credit deals with the film labs. Okay, we'll process X number of feet, basically for like a percentage of profits that may or may not ever materialize. And you know, if you went over that, you'd have to negotiate another deal and you'd have a business owner who might not be so happy about extending more credit. And so there was a lot of stress. And then obviously editing the, the film was just insane amount of work. I mean, he would rent a flatbed editor that took up half of our basement and he would sequester himself for three weeks and he would work around the clock with giant cups of coffee, chain smoking. Well, you, everyone's seen our basement who's watched any of the films. It's the, the basement in the movie Fiend. That's our basement. The unfinished with the cinder block walls, you know. So imagine my dad sitting there in the Fiend basement, big editor. And the walls lined with little clips of movies all organized with every inch of the wall taped with film clips labeled and he would go through this thing and it was just amazing amount of work. I mean, just like, like you said, somebody who had to do it. And on Night Beast, what do you remember about the creature? I don't know, what, what do I remember about the creature? Uh, a lot of teeth. I mean, I, I, I think more about the, the, the creature's creator, John Dodds. Friends called him Bruce. I'm not sure if he still goes by that. Another sort of, incredibly driven and dedicated makeup artist who, who did the night beast you know was just obsessive about the detail for i remember we had this uh jar of saliva right some sort of thick whatever concoction probably like a gelatin thing we were always having to sort of lather up the night beast teeth 
That's mostly what I remember. You know, the the, the back of the the creature's head is always sort of popping out of the uh, space uniform and stuff. Like so mostly just like wardrobe malfunctions and uh, and saliva. So I guess that's about it. <laughs> well, and I guess your dad spared you a brutal and gruesome death on the set. Right. I just got to spoiler alert. I just got to uh, be zapped into uh, oblivion. Yeah. My uncle did not have a similar fate. He was the boyfriend with the shotgun wearing the white shirt and had his uh, intestines ripped out. That was, uh, you know, the most consistent actor on all the films is George Stover. And he probably wins the prize for the most gruesome and most torturous death scene uh, in any of the films, which was Blood Massacre. <laughs> you know, and at the end, he is strung up by his feet. He's hanging upside down while zombies hack at him, you know, with knives. And it was frigid. It was three in the morning. He's hanging upside down while my dad's saying, throw more blood on him, more blood, more blood. You know, well, we got to reshoot. We got to reshoot. And George is hanging upside down in like 45 degree weather with covered in blood at three in the morning. I think that's that that's the, the one that I most remember thinking, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and as a kid, I mean, what was that experience of being on the set like? Because, you know, if you get a glimpse behind the curtain and you know, like, these are the special effects that go into sure. these really gruesome effects, it becomes kind of this fun thing. It's fun, but it's also like a job. Like, you're not even, <laughs> right? But if I watch a, a horror film, even though I understand, obviously, what went into it, it's still scares the heck out of me. So it's still, when I watch it, it works. But if, if you're working on it, it just feels like you have a job to do and that's what you're doing. It's fun. Um, so you're a photographer. You have a very kind of surreal quality to your photos. And I was just wondering, do you feel that like kind of working on those films as a kid or your dad's presence kind of influenced how you approached photography? I was enamored of the creative process because of him. And I remember as I got a little older, he would start bouncing ideas off of me. And I remember this look in his eyes and this, that this, when he, I could tell that there was an idea that was just bursting to come out of him. This intensity that I remember thinking, God, I want to feel that someday. Like that looks amazing to just be like, so bubbling with creativity that it's got to come out and you just can't wait to talk to somebody about it. I think that was the bigger influence, uh, the, the biggest influence was just the magic of, of making things. You know? And how did he look back on his films? I mean, did he feel satisfied with them? Did he feel that people were appreciating them? I mean, what was his kind of feeling about them? I think uh, I, he was definitely proud of, the, proud of the work. I think if he had one big regret, it's that he just never could land that that budget that he felt like would allow him to really, I think he always felt like he was a good, he came up with good stories. I think he felt like he, he was a you know, decent script writer. He didn't really like directing because he was too introverted and he didn't feel like he was able to necessarily bring out the best in people. So, I mean, but he, he usually directed because there was no one else who stepped up to do it. Occasionally, toward the end, his later films, he had a partner, Joe Ripple, who did, did some directing. And 
was, you know, and my dad was happy to step aside for that. He, he felt like he had a lot of elements in place that could have made really, really great films. And if he just could have had a budget to hire professional actors, I think, and, and to give more money, he had friends who were certainly talented enough to do all the special effects and he had some very good special effects. But I think if he would have had more money, he could have made them even better. I think if he just would have had that one and he had a couple of deals fall through through the years and it was always so disappointing so i think that was but he, he was proud of his work but he, i think he always just realized he he just regretted that he couldn't have a little more production value now having said that who knows if they would have had the same charm if he would have had the money to do exactly what he wanted. i i'm a big believer that you know restrictions are good for the creative process you know well, and I do think that the do-it-yourself quality of a film like that yeah. is it is charming and it is like you just respect yeah. how people can pull things together with so little like at their disposal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's nice. I mean, you know, every month I, I get, a you know, a couple of emails from fans just talking about he was an inspiration and they, they just wanted to reach out and just let me know that. And it's, you know, it's amazing. I mean, that, that you know, I always joke that there's like two Don Dohler fans in every city in the world. Because <laughs> Alien Vector, you know, his first film had like like worldwide TV distribution. And like, and uh, you know, so yeah, you get, I get people from, from all over. Oh my God. Something is not quite right. Well, and I'm wondering, too, if Baltimore kind of helps foster a certain kind of yeah. creativity and kind of like an outside-the-box creativity. You also have John Waters yep. laying claim to Baltimore, and it just seems like there is a certain quality to the creativity in that area. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's because, you know, we're, we're close to an, uh, to, you know, more... You know bigger and more cosmopolitan areas we're very close to new york and but we're not considered a you know a, a big destination or a big city in our you know and so we're kind of left to do our own thing nobody you know people just sort of forget about us and this this the and we're very provincial i mean it's not uncommon to have generations of family that have lived here well, John Waters always, you know, jokes that like, you know, trends hit Baltimore like five years after they've peaked or something, you know, some, something like that. And that's pretty much true, you know. So, yeah, I think the fact that we're just kind of left alone to kind of do our thing. I don't I feel like it's kind of hard to shock people from Baltimore. Like you could you could you could pull a stranger off the street and be like, OK, we're making this monster film. And, I could, you know, we're going to like cut your arm off. And, you know, and the, here's the scene we're going to, you know, I feel like like they would be like, OK, all right, let, let's get it, you know. <laughs> Let, let's jump in and do this. You know, I, I feel like they just, uh, it's just a kind of quirky place. Hi. Hi. I'm here about the room for rent. That was a clip from Blood Massacre, directed by Don Dohler. Thanks to Greg Dohler for commenting on a post I made about Night Beast and then agreeing to do this interview. Now that's how social media should work. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with author Matt Rotman to discuss some bonkers-ass cinema. By themselves, they are only a harmless pussycat. A thousand strong, they become a man-eating machine. After seeing this terrifying movie, you will never be able to look another cat in the eye. 
the management of this theater offers free burial insurance to anyone who dies of fright during the film. Caskets are optional on the West Coast. When the cats are hungry, run for your lives. If you crave satisfaction, this is a place to find that action. Coming to this theater as its next attraction is a picture that will put you in traction. Disco Godfather, starring me, Rudy Ray Moore. Disco Godfather. Welcome back. In 2018, Matt Rotman decided to start a blog focused on the genre films he loved. Now, the San Diego-based author and filmmaker has a book inspired by the blog called Bonkers Ass Cinema, a guide to the wildest of horror and exploitation cinema. We began by talking about why he doesn't like to call these movies bad and why he hates the label of so bad they're good. A lot of people think of me as like a bad movie guy, things like that. I find it a little offensive. You know me, I know you. I love all of film, but I obviously gear myself towards genre film, horror film, exploitation films. And in the mode of traditional criticism, they kind of get the lower end of the rung. They get denigrated a lot. And in my opinion, that has a way of making films disappear. They are obviously got buried due to the time period they were in. They're lost on all formats. And then in the meantime, you've just had a generation after generation of film critics that just beat these films into the ground and that way films just disappear outright and as long as they're not talked about they're not watched it's my goal to bring that with my blog the bonkers as cinema blog and the book is to uh, bring these films give them a little life bring them into the mainstream a little bit i approach each film on its own terms this is like the ethos that i'm talking about on its own terms from in the context of its time period its genre the filmography of the filmmaker itself I just treat it with respect. The book is a work of humor. I sold it to the publisher that way. I have a background in comedy writing. But I don't do any sardonic hand-wringing, like, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style. I have a little fun with it, but I don't poke fun at the films themselves. And I think that's what the ethos is. I think a lot of people who are into this type of cinema, they, they approach this with an ironic lens that I absolutely despise. Well, and if people want a point of reference sort of for you, it's kind of the Joe Bob Briggs approach to films. Yes. No, I mean, he's probably the major influence on my blog and the book. He's like a hero of mine because, I mean, I caught him. I'm 36, so I caught him in the late 80s and 90s, and it kind of guided my film taste in general. He was the first one to really take these exploitation films seriously as a film critic. What have we been watching tonight? Nothing to do with zombies, that's for sure. It's a love letter to filmmaking and filmmakers, and especially low-budget filmmakers. And it's about how even the corniest, underfunded concept requires a miracle of teamwork to pull off. It's about what we call our mutant family, the audience and the filmmaker, the people who get it, the people who are there every time somebody like Shinichiro Ueda or Lloyd Kaufman come out of nowhere and create something that corporate filmmaking just could never achieve. Obviously he had fun and did his shtick, which is what I do too. I have fun and I have my shtick, but he took them seriously. He championed films that would otherwise not have been championed. His ethos guides my ethos. 
So what does a film need to have to be considered bonkers enough to be included in your book? That's a great question. I went a lot back and forth with myself for 15 months on that very question. It has to have a certain quality. It doesn't have to be crazy or wild or anything like that, but a certain quality that I haven't just seen before. And that's what I always look for. That's what's entertaining to me. It's just like, usually the films I pick are like singular visions of a filmmaker that only makes sense to the guy who made the film. And that that's what draws me to it. I'm drawn to the most extreme things, either extreme metal, extreme punk rock, extreme filmmaking. I'm always looking for that next high, looking for that next piece to juice me up. And just watching this weird just singular vision of a weirdo who had $10,000 is uh, all I need to get through the day sometimes. So what can people expect to find in your book in the sense of how do you break the films into categories? Is it just films? Do you include filmmakers? Kind of uh, what can they expect from this? I chose nine film genres uh, just to focus on to guide me through uh, like animal attacks films the terrifying tale of man fighting for his life against an ecology gone berserk hg wells the food of the gods for a taste of hell sexploitation blaxploitation monster films alien films even a bigfoot chapter we're already in bigfoot territory where all those people were killed there's a whole action chapter and i deal with your favorite film of all time dangerous men and then there are certain filmmakers I wanted to focus on, so I have little subchapters, director spotlights for the likes of like Doris Wishman and Rene Cardona uh, Jr. And then I usually tie those subchapters into the actual chapters I'm talking about. So the Rene Cardona Jr. subchapters and the Animals Attack. So I talk about Tintorera, Cyclone, and things like that. Well, I wanted to ask you about Dangerous Men because I feel like if you talk a little bit about Dangerous Men, it may give people a better sense of what defines bonkers ass because it's not simply sometimes what's on the screen, but also what went on into that whole process of bringing these films to life. Yeah, so Dangerous Men is a hilarious example of as you say what we're talking about this the ethos the bonkers as cinema the guiding force of why i would pick a film to be included in the book and it's a uh, directed by a guy named i believe john s rad but basically he started making dangerous men i believe in the early 80s and finished it in the mid 90s and it just got released a few years ago in a theatrical and Blu-ray release. So, I mean, we're talking about a process of 30-plus years to get where we are now. Dangerous Men, guaranteed it's like nothing you've seen before. If you've seen this movie, I mean, you would have no idea that John S. Rad thought he just was spending 30 years making his masterpiece, and it's all the better for it. It's over the top. It's... It aims for an art house shtick while being firmly grounded in action cinema. It's it's wild, man. I feel like I made it sound way more sane than it is. It's just a guy with no budget, spent 10 years on the bulk of the production with different actors playing different parts and people that are fatter, hair loss, older in the meantime. It, it doesn't address it at all. 
and then it probably has one of my favorite scenes of all time, which is a guy just walking through the desert for 10 minutes. It's the best. What that film kind of points to, which I think is what's what attracts me to the films that are in the book, is these people may not be considered artists by a lot of the mainstream, but these are people who really had a passion to make the films they made. I, I mean, there was that series, The Incredibly Strange Film Show, which every time I watched an episode, I would want to go out and make a movie because you just feel like these people had to make movies. There was no other choice. Yeah, no, same here. Like it, re- every film in the book really pumps me up. It just juices me and wants me. I like it. It just makes the art of filmmaking itself seem more accessible, which it really is. Especially in this day and age, filmmaking is about as easy as can be compared to thirty years ago. When especially when these guys were doing it, these guys like had to deal with real film. All that stuff cost so much money. And uh, they still did it on a micro budget when you could do the same thing here. And there are examples, there are modern examples in my book too. Um, One of my favorite films of the book is a film from 2021 called Bigfoot's Bride. Every 10 or 15 years, a film is produced that is so overwhelming, so forceful in its impact, that it becomes deeply embedded in the mind its intensity may be more than some wish to be exposed to. And those people should be forewarned. A weirdo entry into any monster Bigfoot genre. And they're always, like, for some reason, there's just not a filmmaker out there who can who makes a Bigfoot movie who can just make a straightforward A to B monster movie. It's always the weirdest film they've ever made. It just, Bigfoot brings that out in everybody. Uh, Bigfoot's Bride is that weird, but like it's aims for more of an art house sensibility where it's more like the anguish of Bigfoot, you know, it's uh, an existential crisis like he's like a loner. It's almost like uh, Bride of Frankenstein. And then like he, he realizes how ugly and monstrous he is and he's lonely and then he finds a girl in the woods who he falls in love with but he can't approach her it's very weird very singular and it takes a really sadistic turn that i won't give away here (laughs) but films like that like you can see the cheapness on display and what people usually call cheap is usually i don't know it it rubs me the wrong way lower budgets obviously look different than higher budget movies. I mean, it's just due to the technology and the talent you can get. But to me, I think for certain people out there, the weird, crazed hermit uncles, like there's a certain aesthetic to this lower budget, I think that draws a lot of people like me to it. Um, it's not as polished and it's, it's, it's uh, you can feel the work and you can feel the passion. And Bigfoot's Bride is a great modern example of how you can use the tools of the digital age and make something on the cheap and it's still, I think, weird and powerful and unique. We're talking about the passion of these filmmakers. Is that part of what attracts you the most to these kind of films, or is there also something else? Well, blood, guts, boobs. I mean, all those. It's great enticement for this type of cinema. Joe Bob's back. The three Bs. Blood, breasts, and beasts. What these aliens want are Earth women. We found some kind of matter on the women that we can't analyze. And not just any woman. I 
until this happened, each one of them has been a virgin. I don't know. Like, I would make an argument, people like me, people into this sort of genre cinema people who are still in the comic books and things like that. There's a sort of adolescence they never grew out of, and I think that ties into it. But as I've grown older and trying to make films myself, trying to do a lot of writing myself, um, there's just so much admiration that I get watching these smaller films. These guys are heroes to me. They may be uh, like a punchline to a lot of people, but they're heroes to me for the most part. And so they really just make me want to pick up a camera and, and get out there because that's that's what they did. To kind of get into this notion of these filmmakers having a passion to do what they do and, and not always being recognized for their art, one of your filmmaker spotlights is on Doris Wishman, who made what were called nudie cuties back then. But talk a little bit about her. Oh, man, I love Doris Wishman. Again, a filmmaker who's like basically for maybe 40, the last 40 plus years, has just been denigrated as a punchline. And the Something Weird releases that released all her sexploitation, the nudie cuties and the roughies that she did. I mean, just having that put out there simultaneously helped keep her, at least as a topic, a conversation among cult film weirdos like myself. But it also created this punchline for her too. Like she just made like these campy, laughy films that you just go and laugh at, which again is just a mindset that I despise. Because uh, when you get into her filmography, this is another person who wanted just to make film. She saw it as a business opportunity initially, but she also felt like she was making real films for the most part. And I think some of that, because she started with the nudie cuties. I mean, no one's going to say those are intellectual <laughs> in any regard. But she did transition a little bit more into like the darker roughies, which are more film noir tinged. And I feel like some of those are like really outstanding, um, especially Bad Girls Go to Hell, which AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive, is going to be putting out, I believe, this year, if it's not already out already. So you're going to see that in pristine HD here very soon. But but she just had a long, like, decades-long career. Like, like you know, the early 60s going with the nudie cuties, the late 60s with the roughies, actual hardcore pornography in the 70s. And then by the time the late 70s rolled around, after Halloween kicked off the horror cycle, she did a horror film. And she continued making films. She did a hiatus until, I believe, the 90s or 2000s. But she was making films right up to her death, like in her 90s. So just a very inspirational figure with, again, a singular mind, a singular aesthetic. You're, you're At a certain point, you know you're watching a Doris Wishman film. Because there's so many... Nudie cuties are a dime a dozen. Ruffies are a dime a dozen. But if you put on one by Doris Wishman, they do stand out from the other... The, I don't want to say Drek, but Drek. You also put these films, like you mentioned, into a context. So one of the things about explaining what these nudie cuties were was explaining why they suddenly were able to make these films with nudity when before they were censored. For the longest time, I mean, other than the Hays Code, which started in the 30s, uh, we every, the country and every locale, state, federal government had obscenity laws that kept nudity out of films. By the late 50s and the early 60s, they were slowly and slowly being 
repealed and pushed back a little bit, but slowly at a time. And the films reflected how slowly these like obscenity laws were pushed back. And usually they were pushed back like locale by locale. So when these films traveled around, sometimes they were allowed to be shown, sometimes they wouldn't. And the filmmakers appreciated when they weren't because it just drove up publicity and uh, ticket sales. And so Macon, Georgia had a different obscenity law than New York City, obviously. By the, I would say, late 60s, almost all of them were completely, all uh, on a federal level, the obscenity laws were completely repealed. So then we get hardcore pornography and things like that. And so each Doris Wishman, so it's like nude on the moon, like she tried to pull a fast one because at that time you could show nudity, but you could only do it in the context of a documentary film. So that's where you get all these nudie cuties uh, films that like take place at nudist colonies. <laughs> and so like the film is like a documentary showing all the shenanigans they're up to at, at the nudist colonies. And so she wanted to branch out of that. And so what does she do? Oh, she's going to pull fast. Let's have a nudist colony on the moon. It will take you out of this world into a truly different adventure. See man's secret dreams come true in Nude on the Moon. And let's have astronauts go to the moon after someone's uncle dies, leaving a fortune from fur. Like, he's a fur salesman, I guess. He leaves a fortune to his scientist nephew, and he builds a rocket, goes to the moon, and there's just a, a colony of a, a beautiful nudists there. Well, semi-beautiful nudists, but sunburned Florida style. It still got banned in New York and after that, but, like, again, that's the context we're talking about. Like, it's each filmmaker trying to push the envelope of what they're allowed to do, and I appreciate that. I wish more people would do it now. <laughs> Some of these titles are hard to find, and I'm wondering, were there any films that you had read about or known about that you just couldn't find? Uh, the hardest film for me to find was a film which is one of my favorites in the book, and it's on YouTube now in a terrible quality, but uh, no, it's called Alabama's Ghost. It's in my black exploitation chapter and I'm not quite sure if it's an actual black exploitation film but I can put it in there because I I can't tell you what it is. I can tell you what it's not, but I can't tell you what it is. And now ladies and gentlemen, Earthquake Magoons takes pride in presenting a magic show featuring one of our former employees, Alabama, King of the Cosmos. It's directed by Frederick Hobbs. And so he, he was most famous as like this hippie sculptor in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s who ventured out to make a couple of weird art house exploitation films. Alabama's Ghost is one of them, but the one most people probably know is the one Agfo released, which is The God Monster of Indian Flats, which is a pretty wild film in itself, which I highly recommend. But Alabama's Ghost is just him swinging for the fences. Again, some guy working completely within his own mind and it's just this this guy who's kind of a handyman at a like jazz club in San Francisco stumbles upon in the crypt of this bar for some reason the bar has a crypt and he stumbles upon uh, this old magician's like equipment and he's like yeah you know what I've always wanted to be a world-famous magician which okay 
and he does. So like it's cursed, and so he's allowed to become famous. But in becoming famous, he's now getting hunted down by Nazi vampires, Doctor Caligula. There's voodoo in this. There's a lot of bikers, and uh, I don't know, a lot of hippie dancing montages as well. I am afraid of no white racist ghost. Through the satellite, I'm gonna perform his vanishing elephant trick. Then I'm gonna tell the whole world it's a big shock. Yeah, a big white racist shock to keep me from taking off his act. Yeah, to keep me from becoming a big star. Yeah. Your ambition will contaminate the planet at Dunecrest. Sorry, honey, this is all some freaking dream. It really depresses me how no one can see this film or probably never even heard of it, but like. The version that's on YouTube is just god-awful. It's really dark. Uh, the sound isn't completely synced up, so you're going to have to like see it tracked down a bootleg. I'm hoping someone like Agfa can get their hands on it. They obviously have access to this guy's filmography, but uh, this is just a film. Like It's it's one I would start a label over <laughs> just to get out if I could. Now, you've mentioned AGFA, which is the American Genre Film Archives, a couple of times. It seems like we need distributors like this to kind of rescue some of these films from oblivion. Yeah, AGFA is great. Vinegar Syndrome is great. Like, uh, Severin is great. And then, obviously, some of the bigger ones, Scream Factory, Shout Select, all that stuff. Same company. But, yeah, they're all doing, like, heroic work right now. Like, I'm scared they're going to run out of films, but then they just keep finding films that I've never heard of before. It's quite amazing, but Agfa, if you're listening, Severin, if you're listening, Vinegar Syndrome, if you're listening, Alabama's Ghost, please, 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 I'll whatever's in my savings account is at your disposal right now. And were there any other films that were a particular challenge to track down? Yeah, I mean, especially when I was getting into like weird Taiwanese action cinema <laughs> things like that. Like Golden Queen's Commando, that was another one I had to track down through bootlegs. I appreciate the journey in trying to track down this. It's it's something you don't have to do too much anymore. I think a lot of us who got into this type of films, or if you're into obscure music as well, for the longest time before the digital age, like it it was a journey to find all this stuff. And now it's a lot easier, especially again with these labels putting stuff out. Now they're not only available, they're available in pristine Blu-ray HD and 4K now. I, I do relish the adventure in trying to track these down, but I would say Alabama's Ghost, Golden Queen's Commando, those two are definitely probably the two hardest ones to get. Leave it to the co-author of The Night of the Living Dead to take the majorettes apart. In sports, winning is everything. But at the Falcon Academy, death is the first prize. The killing touch. You win, you die. Breeders. If you haven't been able to get a date lately, maybe you're lucky. <laughs> Breeders. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your bonkers-ass cinema book. No, thank you. What a pleasure. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of bonkers-ass cinema. And more importantly, I hope you feel inspired to seek out some of these deliciously crazy films. 
you can purchase a copy of Matt's book, Bonkers Ass Cinema, at Bear Manor Media. And you can find his blog at bonkersasscinema.com. He also co-programs films with me as part of Film Geeks San Diego. So if you live in San Diego, follow Film Geeks SD on Facebook to find out about our next Bonkers screening. You can find the videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. And please share the podcast with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love.